Welcome, awesome listeners, to the New Nudist Podcast. I'm Scott Klein, and I co-host the podcast. This podcast is for people curious about the nudism and naturism way of life. If you've been thinking about trying out nudism, if it's been a bucket list thing for you, then this is the podcast designed to give you what you need to know in order to try it out. If you're already a nudist, this show is for you too. We hope you learn more about the movement and get more out of your nudist practice. Well, hello, nudies. It's September, and time to bring you another new episode of the podcast to listen to as you're heading out to your next nudie adventure. There still is more summer for us to enjoy being outside clothes-free. On today's show, we'll hear Evan's interview with Helen Berriman. She and her husband, Simon, are very visible naturist advocates, and they're very active with British naturism. They have a strong social media presence and social media following. Then we'll hear another interview by Evan with Gary Mussel, the co-founder of the Southern California Naturist Association and former president of Anner West, about the recent shakeup in the Southern California nudist club world. All of this is coming up next in episode 32 of the New Nudist Podcast. Stick around. And Evan Nix, how's it going? It's going okay, Scott. How are you doing? I'm I'm sad because we almost were able to do uh, a naked hike today, and then something came up the last minute. I think it's going to be the story of our lives. Yeah, um, stupid. We were real almost life. there. We were uh, almost there. Summer is almost over too. I can feel it waning. Yeah, like a yeah. tide. I'm. I know. I know. But we. I. I want to make this happen. And uh, we're going to go back to the drawing board calendar-wise. So okay, we will do it. We will okay. do it. Plus, okay. it's probably 300 degrees at Olive Dell right now. Um, yeah, I was counting on that. Yeah, yeah. And cold. And and we're going to get uh, we're going to get to Olive Dell shortly. Um, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. But in the meantime, uh, first, you did an interview with maybe one of the more prolific uh, people on social nudists on social media, and that's Helen Berriman. Yes, uh, I spoke with Helen Berriman. Um, Helen and her husband, Simon, are very visible advocates for naturism in the UK. Uh, they're involved with British naturism and many of their own uh, endeavors. And, um, you know, uh, I was just saying, I've, I follow the, the nudism news, you know, I got Google alerts and I, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> I just see them pop up all the time. Like I've been watching all summer and literally every month it's like five, six different stories about the Berrimans. I just saw another one today. Um, no kidding. So they're, they've been very prolific in the press and I was very curious to know if this is like something they do intentionally or wh- how they deal with that. They're also, their whole family is, is on the, uh, you know, uh, in front of the cameras, so to speak, their, their whole family has been worked into their advocacy. So wow. I'm kind of trying to, you know, I'm th- thinking about a theme for this episode today. And, and I'm thinking close to home, you know, these guys really exemplify how their naturism is close to home and their advocacy and, and, uh, sometimes f- for, uh, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. <laughs> well, let's, I, 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 I've been following her for quite some time and, uh, just such a fan of how she's working to really normalize nudism. And, uh, she's, you know, she and her husband are just not afraid to be out there and, uh, you know, on TV, um, the British equivalent of Good Morning America, and you know, they're I just I think that they're they're fantastic. So I can't wait to have you all hear Evan's interview with Helen Berman. Uh, I'm just excited to to talk to you. I'm an admirer of the work that you and uh, Simon do. You guys are so visible with your advocacy. I'm curious to talk to you about just kind of like what your daily nudist life is like. It seems to me like you guys are just always nude. Do you like have day jobs you have to go to and wear clothes? I mean, well, and like- um, Simon works from home, so our living room is his office. I work two days a week at a naturist camp, so don't have to wear clothes there. The other times I'm volunteering for British naturism, again, no clothing required. And the third thing I do is write for H&E Naturist magazine. So again, no clothing required. No clothing required. (laughs) Unless it's cold, obviously, or we're doing something that requires a bit of clothing, then yeah. But I don't like doing laundry, so it's win-win, really. Yeah. I'm curious about the Naturist Club you work for. What's that all about? So it's the Naturist Foundation, which is a charity, and it's the largest naturist venue in the UK. 
Um, it is a venue, so we put on lots of different events throughout the year, but it's also a members club. Um, but it And it's set on 53 acres of land, so, you know, it, it's pretty huge and it's a great place to be. Wow. Has it been around a long time? It's been around for 75 years. Yeah, wow. 75 years. And it was started by two couples, Jack and Ernest and their wives. And sure. they didn't have anything in the area that they could go to. So they just sort of went looking for land and stumbled upon a place, not the current one, but a place. Built it all from scratch. And then the builders came in and said, we want this land. And they went, OK, you can have this land, but you need to find us a replacement and move us into the replacement. And that's where they found Brockenhurst, which is the Nature's Foundation. And we've been there since 1951, I think. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And the, the daughter of the founding members is still a member. It's a non-profit charity and it's run by four trustees. So it belongs to the trustees, I guess, how it works. I understand you are not, you have not been a nudist for a real long time. Is that right? No, um, it's three years this summer. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I don't know. I've got a lot done, I suppose, in three years. It's cool to see that your trajectory has been, I mean, now you're like a sort of like a national figure, it seems like for, for naturism. Is that fair? I guess. I mean, I think the reason why I do it is because I was so very, very wrong about what I thought naturism was. Um, and it wasn't until um, eventually I experienced it for myself. Did I have that light bulb moment and go, oh my God, I've been so wrong. I need to tell everyone that's going to listen. So <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> so you do that voluntarily for BN, obviously. Yeah, or anyone else that asks, really. It's, um, I think when I first shared my story, it was, um, it was for H&E magazine back in January 21. We did a front cover and sort of shared how I got into naturism and from there on I think people were very interested in my story because I went from hating it to embracing it like I did a complete 360 or 180 on it and just grabbed it by the horns <laughs> and um, just wanted to share and help other people really come to terms with their own sort of insecurities and issues within their bodies and just sort of like tell people that naturism isn't weird Society has told us for years that it's weird, and I'm saying, no, it's not. That's <laughs> yeah. it, and I, I say it a lot and <laughs> to anyone that will listen and those that don't, it's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it seems to me like, and, and I, uh, you know, I have a nudist blog, so I have Google Alerts, mm. and just in the last few months, I feel like you and Simon have come up dozens of times, maybe a hundred times. I mean, there, <laughs> I, I have not been able to keep count, but there have been so many stories about you guys in the media just over the last few months. I mean, do you keep count? Uh, no, not really. Um, I, TV stuff is a little bit different. I can keep a bit of a count of that. Sure. We did a story at Christmas, um, which went viral, which took me by surprise just because my family were having Christmas dinner with us. And at points during the day, we might not have had some clothes on. At other points, we did have some clothes on because it's flipping cold in the UK. Right. Um, but yeah, that went mad. That went worldwide. And I was just like, I don't get it. You know, and from that, there was a lot more interested. And so it kind of snowballs and everyone wants a different version of the same story. There was one article about the um, Bare Necessities cruise. So again, that, that went worldwide. And I did another one about hiking in the UK, yeah. which is perfectly legal to do in the UK, which a lot of people don't realize. I think I saw another one about you being in your garden. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting to me how successful you've been in garnering press, whether it's positively framed or negatively framed. How much of that is sort of uh, you just you know, going for it? And how much is an actual strategy that you're, you guys are working along? Um, there's not a, well, there is a strategy within BN, but our, Simon and I's contribution hasn't really been part of that strategy. Some of the stuff has come from BN. Some of the TV stuff has come via BN. And there aren't that many people that are willing to sort of be public 
about yeah. naturism. And so uh, that's probably why it tends to be me and Simon popping up all the time because yeah. we, we don't care, <laughs> you know, sure. and our family is aware and our jobs, obviously, my job, everyone's aware um, and we're proud of it. So we'll, we'll keep we'll keep doing it. Um, but other 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 times, I've I've never gone out to um, seek it. So I haven't said feature me, feature me. It always comes via either BN. Some some of it comes from the Naturist Foundation. Um, a fair amount comes from Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's it really. Have there been any that have really pissed you off? <laughs> a lot of them do piss me off because. I've said some of those things that they report, but they use it out of context or they'll take bits and pieces from other articles that I've done to merge a whole new article. And I'm like, I never wrote that. I never said that. Or I did, but not in that context. So that, that pisses me off a little bit. Yeah. Comments. I don't read the, the whole Christmas stuff. I started to read and just thought, whoa, nah, I'm not reading that. You know, the comments do sort of, say more about the keyboard warriors than it does me taking my clothes off yeah but you know the people can be very nasty and you have to develop a thick skin yeah <laughs> i noticed that simon has been a little bit pissed off at times at <laughs> some at least on twitter he's he's uh, sort of organized campaigns to you know among nudists to to go leave positive comments which i always think is really cool yeah because a lot of people again won't put themselves forward to sort of stand up for us you know, a lot do. I'm not saying they don't, but you know, the the negative sort of negative comments are far more than the positives. Surely, yeah. I think I have a tendency, like you, to try to stay away from them for that reason, even though I know I should probably go in there and provide an alternate perspective. <laughs> yeah, but then you'll just get the hate instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think a lot of nudist naturists have that tendency to seek out these social situations where you can do this, and those tend to be relatively private and closed off from the world. You know, because who wants to draw that kind of attention? Me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's different types of naturism as well. And I belong to a club. I obviously work at one. And I respect those people that do want to have a private place to go to and the, the sense of community you get there. My reasoning, like I said before, is to try and demystify naturism and to kind of desexualize it as well. So much of your um, press appearances are directed at a general audience. This is a podcast that's mostly naturists or naturist inclined people. Mm. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, as an opportunity to to talk to naturists or naturist advocates, you guys are out there advocating. Is there anything that you'd like to see naturists do differently, more of, less of? Ooh, um I love the Twitter community and um, the fact that everyone seems to have each other's back within the the naturist community there. Um, I would like people to not, I know it's easier said than done, but not to be so ashamed of naturism. You know, what what is it that makes us hide away? Um, You know, tell your people at work. And unless, of course, you know, there's a, a real reason within your jobs why you can't do that but the more it's talked about and all of us talk about it to at least just one person maybe it's the man delivering your mail or the guy in the library or or whatever um telling one person you're opening up a conversation that may not have happened prior and you know it just gives people a bit more understanding of what naturism is about and certainly what it's not about you know, you guys obviously have a family that's very accepting of it. That's an important part of being an advocate is having a support system, right? True, but it wasn't always the case. I mean, my mum thought it was really weird at first. Um, obviously, Simon was a naturist long before I was, and we, we both thought it was weird. And then <laughs> and then when, and he is weird. <laughs> and then when I took on naturism, she was still a bit, oh, you as well now. <laughs> But but I just spoke to her about it and I made her read all the articles that I've written for H&E. And so it's other people's perspectives of naturism. And she was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. And so she does get it. 
Jeevan came to work with me off season and had a cup of tea with my colleague who wasn't wearing any clothes and she was fine. She just totally gets it. And, you know, she hears people in the media sort of moaning about naturism. She goes, oh, they don't get it, do they? (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody joined in with you? They're accepting of us being naked, but none of our family have got naked with us apart from um, Simon's two older girls. So they're 22 and 20. So you said he's been a naturist for quite a bit longer. Yeah. And you hated, I think was the word you used, despised (laughs) naturism. And what was that uh, dynamic like before he finally, I assume, convinced you to try it? It was horrendous. I was proper horrible to him. (laughs) I I would make him wear pants in bed, for example. I just didn't want any this naked stuff. It's what's wrong with you. It's weird. Um, And he he would keep the conversation going. For example, he would allow himself to be caught being naked. So, you know, if I, I would come home from work, he'd be naked. We'd have an argument. He'd put his clothes on. Or he'd take a little bit longer to get dressed after a shower in the morning. We'd have an argument, that sort of thing. And it was the lockdown, the first lockdown, where it was hot and I was tired of fighting. And I just went, oh, just be naked then, whatever. And I um, succumbed to wearing a bikini, which I hadn't even done that, like let alone being naked he took a few photos I wasn't repulsed I thought wow I'm a 45 year old woman as I was then plus size I'm normal I've had surgery I've had this that and the other you know corrective surgery and it's okay I don't have to look a certain way so that was the start of that and then Simon got me involved in a normalizing nudity project at a naturist place and asked if I would go along which I agreed to on the understanding I would keep my clothes on and situation was it was going to be a reverse life drawing class so all the naked people were drawing the clothed me but an hour into it I was hot and felt really stupid being the only one in the dress so I took it off and it was that moment that I went oh my god I'm not being objectified it you know people are talking to me they're looking at my eyes and you know still drinking their cups of tea no one was sick like the world kept spinning it was fine and I was just like, oh, okay, I get it now. Wow. Yeah, so that was it. Um, I booked to go back to the nature's place, of, I think, a month later for a whole weekend. And, um, yeah, that was it. That was me hooked then. Wow. I feel like that's, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about their sort of first stories. And it, it for a lot of people, is like a light bulb kind of moment like that, I think, which is very interesting. Not for everybody, though. No. No, not for everybody, but it, it was, it, I just felt, I don't know, comfortable and accepted, which was very odd. Yeah, it seems like that light bulb for you clicked, you know, at least bright enough that y- you became quite passionate about it. I don't know if that's fair to say. Yeah, it's very fair to say. And I just realized how wrong I was and wanted to share. I don't usually tell people I'm wrong, but I was on that occasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine that in, at least in the sense that Simon doesn't have to wear pants in bed anymore. It's probably improved your relationship a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's fine. And now I've got my hormones like <laughs> to keep me company at night and he's freezing because <laughs> the bedroom window's open. And <laughs> yeah, poor uh, boy. <laughs> and you guys have three teenage daughters. What does that look like? Um, two out of three of them are comfortable in the skin that they're in. And those are the two that were brought up by Simon. So they were used to Simon being naked and, you know, um, the middle one says, you don't question what's normal to you. So for her, being without clothes is fairly normal. She wouldn't call herself a naturist, um, but indeed, if she's hot, she'll take her clothes off, Hmm. you know. Um, But it's, it's a good point to sort of illustrate that those girls that have had naturism in their lives for a long time, have no body issues. Interesting. So, and the, your third daughter is your daughter? She's mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Simon adopted her during lockdown yeah. as well. And she's cool with what we're doing. She knows we're sort of trying to help people and trying to make people accept the skin that they're in. It's not for her. 
Um, if she has friends coming over, she'll go around denuding the house. So taking down any reference to naturism. Oh, wow. <laughs> All her photos, they're gone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's 16 and her identity is in the clothes that she wears, you know, in the, yeah. the brands that she wants. So that that's who she is. And that's great. But they're all so different. Yeah, same. I went the other way. I was a bit goth. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit goth too. Um. <laughs> she did come with me. She came with us um, last year to to work because um, it was my birthday, and she said, "Right, I'll come with you to support you. It is your birthday, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I said, "Great." And she lasted about two hours, and then went, "Mom, I've had enough. I need to go. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed <laughs> with all these naked people." But she tried it. Yeah, that's fair. That's cool. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I I have a four year old, and uh, I we bring him to the local nudist club that we go to. Um, you know, every once in a while. My wife is not a a big nudist, but she does go with me, and she enjoys naked hiking and stuff like that. But clearly, the passion really only infected me. I'm just constantly <laughs> talking about it, and she's like, "All right, shut up." Yeah, <laughs> that's what I found with Simon. Actually, is the more he went on about it, the less inclined I was to talk about it. I think that's a real phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, So, but his persistence paid off. The man is very patient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. This has been really cool. Thank you so much for doing this. Big, again, big admirer of the work you and Simon are both doing, and, and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And speaking of close to home, which I think is a great theme for today's show, um, boy, we've had a lot of changes here in Southern California, haven't we? Yes, it's been quite the whirlwind the last month here in Southern California. Have you been following the news? I have. Uh, Planet Nude has kept me up to date. And uh, thank you for, for you know not letting this happen in silence. Uh, so tell us what's been going on and, and what do you think it means for nudists and naturist clubs uh, moving forward. Yeah, well, so let's just start at square one. So a couple of weeks ago, it um, was it became news. De Anza Springs Resort, which is one of the three family naturist resorts in the sort of Southern California area, the immediate area, um, they announced through a release to their uh, residents and members that they would be going clothing mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um Naturally, there are, you know, site-holding residents there who are diehard nudists. That's why they yeah. bought a home in a nudist resort who are very unhappy with this decision, this news, this business decision. And um, and there's a lot that goes into it. The, the, the De Anza Springs has a, a, you know, history, long history in the area. They sold, uh, the previous owners sold it to new investing owners a couple of years ago who had plans of turning it into this big sort of, um, Coachella kind of uh, spot in the desert, and mm. but promising that they would keep it uh, nudist, and then sort of going back on some of those promises here and there, slowly experimenting with making it a sort of half nudist, half textile uh, resort at times on weekends and stuff. So, yeah, it's a it's a long story, but it's been a little bit you know a fear of people's for some time that they would go textile, and they they made the official announcement. And um, then within days, uh, literally just a few days later, uh, naturist advocates who who were paying attention here in Southern California were a little bit thrown for a loop when Olive Del Ranch, another of the three local clubs, uh, appeared listed on a real estate exchange website online um, for sale. So uh, everybody had a lot of questions immediately, obviously, and I was very curious. I'm, you know, investigating this now to write about it for the newsletter. So I spoke with the owners of both clubs, trying to get to the bottom of each situation separately and also looking at it, you know, from a macro lens. You know, I'm very curious to know what's going on. So sure. Uh, so I, 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 thought there was one person that I could speak to who would definitely have the, the sort of higher level macro view. And that person yeah. is uh, Gary Muscle. Um, Gary is a uh, very, very active Southern California naturist. He's a co-founder of the Southern California Naturist Association. He was a president of Vanner West for years. He uh, resigned from that position in 2021. And uh, he just, more than anybody, he's been a naturist in this area for 
uh, you know, 40 years at least. So he's, he, uh, he has the long view. He's seen many clubs close. He's been a part of that, those things. And there's a lot of credentials I could feed you about Gary yeah. to give you a sense of, uh, why he's an important person to hear their perspective on this whole thing. But, um, I actually had him do that at the beginning of our interview. So I'll save everybody from having to hear it twice and let him introduce himself and people can judge for themselves why this is a, an important perspective to hear. Fantastic. Well, uh, I agree. There, there are a few people who are as dialed into uh, what's going on here in Southern California, naturism and nudism, than Gary. Um, I, so I'm, I'm thrilled that he's uh, going to come on the show and talk about it. So uh, without um, any other preamble, here's Evan's interview with Gary Muscle. Wait, I have one more preamble, oh. but <laughs> it's mostly just a sound effect. First, maybe we could just introduce, you know, somewhat briefly your sort of history with nudism. Well, I'll take the whole 20 minutes, but okay. <laughs> My name is Gary Muscle. I'm probably best known as the founding president of Southern California Nature's Association, better known as SCNA. It's been around for over 20 years over the greater Los Angeles area. Came about because um, of the previous thing I was involved in. I was on the board of directors for Elysium Institute, which was the only nudist uh, park in Los Angeles in the 1980s and 1990s. I was a member there for 20 years and rose to uh, open my big mouth a couple times and I wound up on their board of directors and was at the end after uh, the owner died and uh, the daughters inherited the property. I wound up on the board of directors as the, the main protector of the realm, as it were. The girls wanted to sell the property, and I was able to postpone that for up to three years while the members reorganized it uh, to stop it. And eventually they sold the property in 2000, and, and then 2001, there was a abortive attempt to start another uh, Elysium in Malibu. I was on that board of directors, and that was undercapitalized and failed, and then we founded just CNA. After that, I served on the Anner West Board of Directors for 10 years, was their president for four years, just ending in 2021. And since then, I've been retired, although the world doesn't seem to want to let me go. And the last decade, I also took on the task of trying to win back a nude beach that had been lost in Santa Barbara County, which is an impossible task. Once we lose nude beaches, they never come back. And so I thought it was just an exercise in public relations, trying to spread the word about naturism and nudism in Santa Barbara County. If we got the beach back, great, but otherwise I was going to at least plant the seed that we were normal human beings, our neighbors, and there was no downside. And it took 10 years, and to my surprise, after an awful lot of PR work, we actually were granted um, section of beach, and so there's now a nude beach in Santa Barbara. And I'm still the director up there, although I'm trying to retire, but as happens in most of the organizations, you go out feet first. You don't go out while you're living. So I'm trying very hard to find my successor without my success. I also do the monthly newsletter for SCNA, which is read all over the country. I've done that for 20 years. I retired as editor of that a year and a half ago, and they couldn't find a replacement. So 18 months later, I'm still temporarily the editor of a retired position. So again, I, I seem to have my fingers in lots of pies, but not by choice. It's by uh, the fact that they can't find anybody to replace me. That's really good for the ego, but not so good for uh, what I want to do the rest of my life. But that's, that's really what brings me here. So you want to hear me also, so great. It's, it's, it's nice to talk to you. You also are very, very important to the community. And I'm happy to share any insights you may think I can provide. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I'm honored, especially after hearing all of that by uh, such a compliment. But um, I, I want to talk to you about every last one of those things, and we probably don't have time today. But I am curious to talk to you specifically about Elysium because obviously that is a historic club and really? and its owner who you mentioned, Ed Lang, was sort of a historic nudism advocate. And as you mentioned, he was a sort of sole proprietor of that club. Is that right? 
and uh, yeah, it was it was his baby from the beginning in 1967. In May, he decided to put his money where his mouth was. He had a business uh, publication, the business in Los Angeles, but he got harassed and raided by the LAPD for spreading pornographic material. He decided that he needed a place to put his money where his mouth is, so he bought the land in Topanga. Uh, it was re uh, reclusive, there was a parking, and, and decided to invite his nudist friends onto the property. It was his, it was zone A3, so you could have a nudist park there, but basically he just considered it his residence with friends on it, and he founded the Institute, which was a self-help institute. It really was a nudist park as such. It was a, um, a, a part of the, um, the, the self-help movement in the 70s, which was big. Uh, you know, yoga, uh, group therapy, all the things like that 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 went on in the 70s, which was which was the rage. Uh, healthy food and uh, nudity was part of that. The neighbors were outraged and um, they filed suit. Uh, they rezoned him so he couldn't be there anymore. He filed suit back saying no ex post facto. The case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the L.A. County supervisors didn't count on a person they were suing to have deeper pockets to the county. And he was able to hold it off for 20 years. And it was the biggest, most expensive zoning case in L.A. County history. Bought several years apiece. And then, unfortunately, he got prostate cancer and died. His daughters inherited it because it was sole proprietorship. They decided to sell the property for the money. And... Uh, I got involved and wound up doing a lot of things to get the membership back. The, the, group, the membership was as high as like 1,500 members in its heyday about 1990, and it dropped to like 300. The girls had tripled the fee and did all kinds of things to make it die uh, so they could just sell the land. And the members and me fought back, and we actually got the membership back to 700 and made it profitable again. And they were outraged. So they sold the land out from under us and just said, we're taking the money and you guys can go wherever you want to go. So that died in at the end of September of 2000. And I am writing a book about it. So I won't spend more time on this, but I'm going to write a book about that the, the whole last couple of years because it's definitely a, a model in how to, how to destroy a business um, if you want to destroy a business and take the profits and run, which is a common theme, by the way, in, in all the nudist parks. Um, they're, the land they're on is almost too valuable for what's on the land. And uh, the next generation doesn't seem interested in carrying on the entrepreneur's tradition. And so we're seeing a lot of clubs die with the same theme. Elysium was just kind of the first here in L.A., but uh, we've seen well over half the clubs a lot in California die in the last 20 years. And it's, all, it's always kind of the same economic uh, reasons. But anyway... That was the Elysium story. Um, I'm going to write a 300-page book on it, and you can all can read that in a couple of years if I retire. <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting, and, and I won't ask you much more about this because I want you to save it for the book. But, um, you know, obviously the sort of writing was on the wall at Elysium. You guys were able to stave it off by keeping an active group there, it sounds like. But it's interesting, yeah, to your point, how those battles get fought with them trying yep. to self-sabotage and, and whatnot. And I... I think that's something that you, you're seeing now in certain instances. We can get to now, but I, I am kind of interested in some of those other clubs you mentioned that have uh, sort of folded in the last 20 years. I know there was obviously uh, McConville, which became, Oaks. remind me, Mystic Oaks, thank you. Yep. And and uh, and others. Uh, any off the top of your head? And that died because of a divorce uh, settlement. The, the two got divorced and she got the land and didn't want to run it and sold it and and that's why that one died uh swallows went under because of the fire that swept through um and through them uh rumor has it between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars to rebuild the people who they came in um well, the owner sold it he saw that he couldn't do it so he sold it to a guy he said i'll come back and rebuild it i'm up i'm in the business and i'll put up the prefab houses and we'll sell them and um, and get back to even, and he built too fast, and the bank notes came due, and it couldn't cover it. The bank foreclosed, so Swallows went down. Silver Valley out in uh, in the desert, out near Barstow, closed up. The the owners just got burned out after all the years 
and there weren't enough members left to sustain it. Basically, the business model that got the club started, if I can do go 20,000 feet on you here. Yeah, please the, do. The business model in the 60s and 70s was, if we build it, they will come mentality. They opened it up. It was it was a new craze, nudism. Wow, this is great. People come in on the weekends. They come in for seminars or workshops, and it sustained itself. But the business model was flawed because you actually need a floor of income to cover the mortgage and the basic infrastructure, and that requires you become an RV park. Uh, you need that monthly income from all those residents in order to cover things, and then the day visitors are kind of the uh, the bad money. That's the crazy. That allows you to do special things, buy new infrastructure, and the rest of it. But in all honesty, if a club doesn't have the RV income to uh, underneath it, um, eventually inflation and everything else will catch up with it. And then if the owner dies, there really is nothing there but the property value. The Elysium itself, ironically enough, and I'll tease my book this way, was probably not going to last very much longer anyway because of the business model. They had a half dozen residents in, in all. Most of those were just freebies and friends of Ed. But it was basically a day park. People come in on the week uh, for a day overnight, go home, and in the middle of the week, it was pretty much dead. It still could bring in enough money to sustain itself, but the buildings were now uh, 20 years old, and it was going to require a major investment, and there was no money for that. Sure. So the irony of it is, is that the, the daughters of, uh, got the, uh, who sold it out from under the club became the great villains of the piece. But if they'd held on a couple of years, then they would have died of its own death. And that theme, I think, carries through a lot of the other clubs, that, that the property is just too valuable for the, for the heirs. Uh, the problem, if we could just go to De Anza, is I'm worried about their business model because they're building their business model on the rave special event model. It's sort of a Burning Man thing. Kind Burning of, Man kind of, South, yeah. And this, yeah. you can only do it so much. Burning Man is unique because it happens once a year. But if you right. have a Burning Man every month, there's no necessity to go this week. I can go next week. Yeah, well, so just to provide a little context for that for listeners who may not understand the De Anza reference, is just very recently this club has announced that they um are going no longer they're a nudist club that's been around since i think 1997 and they've yeah. announced they're going clothing mandatory and the nudist residents that live there some of them site holders are obviously upset about this change and these new owners just bought the place a couple of years ago and promised to keep it nude but have started making these changes like making it half nudist half clothed on certain days and things like that and yeah they're they're 75 miles or something east of San Diego out in the middle of the desert and not very conveniently located to other any other cities really. Yeah, Hacumba's the closest town and it's got like a hundred people in it and one restaurant and it, it's right on the border and it's, there's just no way it would work. Back in the 2003, I actually wrote an article in Ed Magazine called The Graying of Nudism and uh, what and what to do about it. And I just went back and reread it and I pat myself on the back. I didn't realize what a sage I was I was at the time. This is before there were cell phones or the era of social media. But I predicted most of the things that have happened now that that we have far fewer clubs. The ones that survived had to become boutique clubs that would offer something special to a selected market or also they had to become mega clubs. Well, Eden became a mega club. And um, it's not just the fact that they're member-owned, which means they'll never go out of business until collectively somebody makes them a property offer that, that the whole group can't refuse. But basically, they're going to be the last one standing. But I do worry about the business model at Olive Dell. We just had a shock because they just got listed at, at the exact same week that Deanza put their notice up on textile only, suddenly there was a notice online for, for sale for, for Olive Dell, which was unexpected and yet has always been in the back of my mind since it got sold. That one was an old property which deteriorated in the late 1990s as the owner got ill and he 
stopped putting money into his infrastructure. His son, Bobby, and his wife, Becky, had a big meeting that I attended, I guess it was 2001, pulling all the members together, saying, do we want to sell it or do you want to keep going? And all the members there said, let's keep going. So Bobby said, fine, I'll invest. We'll prove this stuff and we'll make it a good club again. He invested time in attracting other local uh, non-landed clubs, uh, the Nighthawk Club in Orange County, for example, RSCNA Club. And over the years, they've all had special events there and it's kept it going. But he is he is maxed out on his land. He's got, I think, 86 to 90 RV spots and they're full. He's got, he, he is capitalized out, which means that he can't make any more money unless he raises rent. And if there's a um, need for infrastructure change or a major repair, he doesn't have any, any capital for that. So he actually uh, sold the property to some people who were interested in keeping it nudist, but we're interested in developing part of the land that was part of the Olive Dell land that's around us, 192 acres. Yeah. And wanted to develop part of that land. Bobby thought that was a good idea. If they could build some more RV spots there, they could decrease the capitalization, have the money they needed to survive in the future. And that's what these guys were interested in. Well, it hasn't quite worked out. COVID came through, uh, put the kibosh on immediate plans. These guys had taken out a loan to buy the property. So now they are trying to raise capital through more investors to get back to the original plan. But the reason why they have stopped um, improving the property, why everybody get a surcharge, why the gate fee went up from um, from $15 to $25, and things like this is that owners are trying to raise the capital to pay off the nut or to um, or to get it uh, re uh, renegotiated. So that's the immediate crisis at Olivedale. Bobby told me he's convinced that it's a temporary thing. It's going to survive. He's not going to let it die. Uh, he's still a minority owner, and he's got to say whether it survives or not. But anybody who's ever been involved with corporations, a minority owner um, is a minority owner, and uh, he may not have as much say as he thinks he does, but we're all hoping he's right. Uh, we're all hoping he survives, because otherwise, Juan Eaton is the only guy left standing in Southern California except for the Atlantic clubs. Yeah. Uh, which should be a which should be a, a shame. Uh Glenn yeah. is a fine club, but Certainly. unique competition and um so we're all rooting for all of Dell. But that's that's how I see that. To do your bigger question about Southern California clubs, that's yeah. pretty up to the day. No, I think that's very relevant. And and of course I've been following the stuff at Olive Dell. I love Olive Dell. I go there to hike. I bring my family there. I've been closely following the situation and, and obviously concerned. You've been through this a time or two and have certainly witnessed it in clubs that you weren't a part of. What can residents of Olive Dell do or members Southern California naturists who love that space and appreciate that space? What can we do to support the club and to prevent its sale other than try to find somebody else who, who would buy it in a pinch. I kind of think that events are out of our control in some sense, because it's a, it's, we're talking about a couple million dollars and that's out of our reach to, uh, to help. We can, we can be there a lot. We can pay our $25 ahead to come in. So the, the answer is that we are doing everything we can, but they have to find another investor willing to come in and then hopefully that new investor accepts the, the current dream. The new guy comes in says, I'm going to give you $5 million, but I'm going to build condos and the nudists have to go. They'll, what's their choice? What are they going to do? The trend on small clubs and boutique clubs is, 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 is grim. Anner's membership itself, they've dropped from 270 clubs to about 200 in the last 20 years. Uh, their membership has dropped from a high of 50,000 in 1998 to a stable of 27,000 now. Uh, the Nature Society is about half that. Um, they, they don't release their numbers, but that's the rumor of them, where they are. You, you need national organizations, you need their infrastructure and their guidance to be able to fight the legislation that will put us out of business totally 
So they can't go away, but they can't sustain themselves on on the dues that they're that they're being asked for. Uh, the number of clubs is dropping rapidly. As I said, it dropped from 270 to 200. I suspect it'll drop in half to half that in the next 20 years, and you'll have only mega clubs left. They'll be spaced further out, so it'll be harder to get to. And so I'm not sure what they're going to do. But in the next 20 years, are going to be a, a major concern for me for that organization. And that, uh, the other organization, the Ninja Society, already went through a major change. Um, Lee Baxendahl, the uh, founder and, and, and uh, philosophical uh, core of that, died about 10 years ago. The team that replaced him kept it going, but you're now at the point where they have a, an excellent 80-page magazine every quarter, and you're paying $80 um, a year for an 80-page quarterly magazine. Um, again, it comes down to, is that worth the money? If not, what do you offer? They used to do um, what they call gatherings in every uh, one of their four or five regions around the country every year where all the clubs and all the members could come and trade stories and have workshops and learn about things and learn from each other. And they were great. I, I've gone to those for 20 years. But the numbers on those have dwindled from like 300, 300 members down to maybe 50. Uh, people are not coming to talk to each other. Why? Because they have cell phones. They have the internet. They have social media. They don't need to travel. They can do it instantly online. And so what the naturist movement is competing with right now is social media and with an easier way for people to talk to each other and satisfy that need to talk. I read your article about the graying of nudism that you sent before this that you mentioned. And uh, I think you put it well that a lot of the people now in adulthood, you know, since you wrote that 20 years ago, have grown up without seeing each other in dressing rooms or, or really having a social nude experience, but they're still exposed to nudity probably 10 times more than generations previously because of the internet. And all yeah. that nudity is either sexualized or censored. And that certainly says something about our perception of nudity when that's, you know, all they see. Yeah. The, the line I like to use is that you have a generation who sees nudity as foreplay. <laughs> yeah. They don't see it as nudity as an end to itself. Sure. They see it as a sexual foreplay. And that has to do with advertising and society and how they've grown up. And that's the biggest tragedy of all. That, that's the biggest thing we have to overcome. And we're playing into the fears of those who have always thought that we are a bunch of nuts. Um, perverts, we're just there trying to groom our children for, for sexual activity. Don't let the kids play with their neighbors because you don't know what the neighbors are like. Just that's the way the society is. I think 9-11 did that to us to a great extent. It made us fearful of our own shadow. I don't have an answer for you. You know, I can wave the flag and say we have a problem, but I, I'm not. I have not a, a solution. If I did, I write a book about it. But, I, but the the thing is that it's a the solution, if it exists, is out there. My own feeling is that the next generation is going to redefine nudism in their own image, the way they are comfortable with it, just as we did it. In the 1930s and 1960s, the 1930s tried to emulate the German model. It was all catasthetics, no smoking, no drinking, all exercise. We're going to hide away at a location so that we're safe. Nobody's going to know we're there. Really, were camps. You, you were no abilities. You brought your tent. In the 1960s, that got reinvented after World War II. The GIs came back. They wanted a place to go. All the little parks that we now know got founded in the 50s and 60s. That whole business model came through, and now that business model is dying. And the next generation with the internet is going to reinvent it their own way. We're lamenting about the loss of parks. We're lamenting about the loss of, of uh, full interacting to person. In reality, that may be just how it goes. And uh, I want to be a fatalist on that because I don't want to see it go. But I don't have an answer, but that seems to be the trend. I think it's interesting the way you sort of framed it just now in like waves of the 30s push that started nudism that was based in that free corporate culture. And then the 60s push that was a little bit more of the sort of golden days kind of thing. And one thing that I do see looking at it at this macro level a little bit, 
is that those 30s ones, some of those obviously are still around. I actually just had the opportunity to visit Lake of the Woods Club in Indiana a few weeks ago on a vacation to Chicago. And that club is celebrating its 90th year this year. And they are a member-owned co-op. And I feel like that sort of discussion about co-ops is one thing that's bubbled up recently with everything that's going on in Southern California, at least on social media, people have mentioned that idea of member-owned co-ops being a more, uh, you know, a way to preserve those clubs. I don't know if that's necessarily what nudism looks like in the, you know, this new era to your point, but um, having a space for more experiential, more event-based nudity, which might be one way that things are going in the, in the sort of future, still having those spaces that allow for it is going to be important. Some of these clubs, Glen Eden being one of them is a member-owned co-op. It's also sort of a mega club. Uh, you know, do you think the co-op is, is something that potentially could, <laughs> I don't know, could, no, it's, could it's, help some of these clubs? It, the answer is yes. It has, you have to have a way to counter the, the entrepreneurial decline. But you, that only buys you time. The property value and the infrastructure technology is still creeping up behind you. And whether your decision as an individual, as an entrepreneur, is to sell the property and take the money and run, or collectively as a group say, let's take the money and run. It's just, it's still taking the money and run is still the problem. I think it buys time, but I also think it's a one-size-fits-all solution that's being proposed, and I'm not entirely sure that fits every situation. I think it should be considered, but there are clubs like uh, Sequoians up in the Castro Valley, up in up in uh, San Francisco, which is kind of a semi-co-op, but they are at the end of a of a long road. They're in a, a little isolated canyon. They really, um, they're the old style. You have to be nude, you have to be undressed in the parking lot to come in. They are, um, it's a small club, but there's not a lot of camping. There's no RV spots, and they like it small. They like it with 30, 40 members, and that's happy. But what happens is that when those 30 members, 30 families die off or they just, their kids decide to do something else. And so having a co-op is not the answer if the members themselves decide that they decide not to replace themselves. So replacement is a major issue. You know, I, I got involved with the beach and I, my first experience with the beach, that's great. The trouble is, is that People keep building houses out the ocean. Uh, we're out of land for housing. We got a homeless problem. And the cities are going to start building houses on every vacant lot in every hillside they can find in order to, to keep ahead of it. That means that the hillsides above the beaches are even more in danger than they have been in the last decade. And so you've got the problem of the guy on the, the hill above the looking down saying, I don't want those dudes down there. Well, they were there first. I don't care. I want them gone. So you've got that long-term fight continuously. At the same time, you got sea level rising. So I'm also concerned that we're fighting a losing fight at the beaches in the long run. Bates was a great win, but seeing where it is in 50 years, that beach is gone. If, see, if the predictions of sea rise occur, sea goes up 10 feet, there's no beach anymore. Yeah. And in fact, half the city of Carpentaria is gone. But that's going to happen in all the way up and down the coast that the little enclaves we've had. Now, does that mean the beaches are gone forever? No, we just find another beach. We just keep moving further and further inland. But that's not my generation's problem. That's two generations from now problem. Mm-hmm. And they'll have to solve it. That's kind of the conundrum that we're in. Yeah, it, it needs volunteer effort. And, and unfortunately, there's a certain lack of that. So every generation laments the fact that they're going to die. There's no generation to follow them. And every generation seems to find the volunteers. Somebody seems to always step forward and surprise us. I don't know who that will be, but I'm not looking for a uh, Ned Lang or a Lee Baxendall, some great savior to come in with a great idea to save it all. There's going to be lots and lots of little people winning little battles here and there. Collectively, they may get together and say, hey, look, we have something in common. But I think it's going to be fought at a local level, place by place, beach by beach, park by park. And it's going to survive or it's not. I mean, don't you think that uh, those 
the Ed Langs and the Lee Baxendals, in a lot of ways, what they are is leaders. And don't you think leadership is a, is a part of it on some level? Yes, it is. Um, leadership seems to discover itself. I don't, um, I, I certainly didn't want to be a leader or a sage in this. Um, I don't think I'd be here 30 years later talking to you. <laughs> I was just a volunteer. I just, I was just a guy who brought his kids up to Elysium on Sunday. They splash in the pool. I read my, my uh, LA Times and I had a great time. I didn't know I was going to be doing this. Um, it's just that uh, circumstances happen. I had great faith that circumstances will find certain people rise to the top despite their best intentions and, and best hopes. They will just suddenly be there. Um, but again, that's the manifest destiny trap that we fall into. We always have the sense that you get, oh, there's always land further west. If you have trouble here, just keep moving west. Eventually, you hit the coast, and now there's no more land. Uh, eventually, we run out of volunteers. We run out of places to have a park. We run out of beach. So eventually, the manifest destiny idea of, well, there'll always be somebody to step forward, that, that's a trap, too. I mean, it may happen, but it won't manifest itself the way that we define it right now. It'll define itself as it's going to define itself. Um, and, and I have to have faith that Somehow, all I could do is plant the seed here. I hope that somebody out there listening says, you know, he's right. I need to do more. All of them. All of Dill needs all the help it can get. GE needs the help. Um, all the little parks. Um, the individual, Don Landing Club, Nighthawk, SCNA, Camping Bears, they all need your support, not just online, but actually showing up for something. Um, if you can financially help them, great. If not, volunteer is the same thing as donating money. Help us survive so that it can evolve. No matter what happens, uh, the danger of being shut down by people who think we're all crazy perverts is always going to be there. We have to have an infrastructure that fights off against that. And if right. we don't have that infrastructure, they will put us out of business despite ourselves. I believe that's why a lot of people really do support the organizations like that bedrock of members that isn't necessarily part of that monthly or yearly flux of, of Anner's members. I think those are the ones that probably support it because they support the cause. And that's what I would personally like to see the organizations lean back into, you know, new to natural magazine clothed with the sun magazine. That magazine used to be much more political and like would talk about a lot of these issues uh, as if they're building a coalition. And I feel like that's one thing that a lot of them have lost. A lot of them don't quite realize is the people that support them are the coalition that support the, the work that they're doing to protect this whole thing. Yes. So they, they should lean into that because I think that's what my generation is interested in seeing and interested in supporting. They don't really care about the hotel benefits you might get by being an Anna member or anything no, like that. That, that come, comes down to the organizations being uh, settling in and maturing. Lee Baxendall was the, and, and Bob Orton were the ones who churned. They're the ones who kept saying, this is going on, that's going on. We need to, we need to be active here, be active there. After they, the next generation got to be, um, let's play it safe. I don't want to offend anybody. The, 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 the country is so fractured now between blue and red. Nobody wants to offend the other side for fear of losing dues. Sure. And so let's just go in the middle and not say anything except how wonderful this location is and hope everybody shows up and don't say anything political at all. So we have homogenized the movement. And the magazines are all, almost corporate magazines are all feel good. Every, there's never a controversy, there's never a problem. Everything is fine. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. As you said, this generation is not fooled by that. And those are the people that are going to define nudism, not what we define it as, but it's what those kids are going to define it as. I have great faith and I have great fear. I don't know where it goes. I hope the people out there, as, as we've given them something to think about. I think we have. I'm uh, really grateful that you took the time to do this, to chat with me about all this stuff today. I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Um, I'd like to. Even for my own sake, I just thought this was enriching and interesting. So thank you. Happy to do it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Evan. 
Well, that's it for today's show. Uh, thank yeah, kind you. of a depressing way to end the show. I got man. Um, you know, uh, hey, hey, a, a problem well defined is half solved. So you know, that's we, right. We clearly see that there is work we have to do here in the news areas season. for opportunity. Areas for opportunity, and everyone who is practicing nudism and naturism, you are part of the solution. So um, I would love to hear what he thinks about the next 20 years. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it, obviously, very few people have the long view that somebody like Gary does, and uh, yeah. his words have a, have a lot of weight and a lot of meaning. So I was super happy to talk to him. I hope we get to do that again. Yeah, I do too. Well, folks, we have, we have work to do, and... Uh, you know, frankly, that's what the show is about. So um, we'll get to it. Um, and hey, thank you to Helen Berriman for coming on the show today and telling, sharing her story. Uh, you can find he Helen visible on Twitter, Vimeo, and a bunch of other outlets, and we'll include the links in the show notes. Um, hey, and th thank you for doing those interviews with, with Helen and Gary. I'm so glad to hear from Gary. Um, yeah, even thank if you, Scott. Had a great time. Kind of, you know, a little... Uh, you know, not the most optimistic. Heavy, <laughs> Heavy dude. Yep. Uh, we're going to go drink now. Yeah. And uh, cheers. Cheers. Uh, sounds like Kids Camp went great in Ohio this year. Um, you'll find a link where you can make a donation to help a nudist child attend Kids Camp next summer in the show notes. Please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. More shows to come. Do reach out and tell me what you think of the, about the show. Um, if you're relatively new to nudism and naturism uh, and you're willing to share your story on this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. New nudist podcast at gmail.com. So we get to the quote part of our closing. And uh, of course, I went to chat GPT. What did you do today? Yeah, I went to chat GPT too, just because you always do. And I figured how interesting will it be if we have two different quotes? If we All right. I'm going to go with mine. You ready? Okay. You start. Okay. Nudism teaches us to embrace our true selves, shedding not just our clothes, but also the layers of judgment, shame, and pretense that society often imposes. In our vulnerability, we find freedom and authenticity. Oh, I like that. Right? I All right, what, what did ChatGPT just... Yeah. All right, mine, I got, um, true freedom begins when nudity is celebrated as a basic human right. Yes. I think you win the ChatGPT quote today. At least for length. It was shorter. Yeah. <laughs> and hopeful. And hopeful. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Scott Klein. I'm Evan Nix. And we hope you have a great naked day. <laughs>